Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show on AM 1000 in Orange and San Diego counties and on AM 930 in Los Angeles County. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you through the good offices of Relevant Radio from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. Indeed, welcome to another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. And this particular broadcast is going to be a rather unique one. If you've listened to this program for any length of time, I'm sure you've enjoyed the wit, wisdom, and intellect of our host and teacher, really, and that is Rick Howick. But how much do you know about his faith journey prior to his conversion to the Catholic faith? We're about to share with you some of the audio of Rick's appearance on EWTN's The Journey Home television show, dating back to the summer of 2005. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this very compelling conversation between the host, Marcus Grodi, and our very own Rick Halleck. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. Rick, welcome to The Journey Home. Thank you, Marcus. You were just on the brink, right, at, in seminary? Yeah, I had actually finished the Master's in Divinity and was working on a second Master's degree. I had completed all the ordination exams and was ready there to go. Were. There you were. We, we won't jump there quite so Not fast, yet. but that's kind of the place, you know. That, right at that uh, cusp. <laughs> that's the cusp. But let's jump way back and uh, let's let our audience hear a little bit about where you came from spiritually. I was born, as, we, as I told you when we were talking earlier, which is... Wonderful to be able to do. I, I was born a marginal Methodist. We had little M's tattooed on our backsides <laughs> in our family. Um, that f- Methodist background goes back generations and generations. We even had, I remember seeing in my Aunt Louise's attic, she was showing us documents and some parchment there in Pennsylvania. And there's this circuit writer's license from the Methodist Church from like 1806 to be able to go ride. And So you uh, actually had a Methodist circuit writer we as, had a, a, as a great-grandfather or something. Well, the religion of my family goes back on the other side, too. There's a little town in Quebec called Howick, which if you blink, you go through it. Uh, apparently there were three sisters, I understand, who were hanged like about 1,700 as witches. But I don't think we want to go to that end of the religion part of my family. We'll go back to the Methodists for just a moment. My family, uh, I I come from a so-called broken home. My mom and dad divorced when I was very young, about two, and moved to California. And so I wasn't really raised much in the Methodist church. My grandmother had been very involved. And my mother, we started to go to the Methodist church. It kind of came to an end when there was a small problem between the minister's wife and a a teacher from the uh, from the school there, and so when as the church exploded, my <laughs> family stopped going except on uh, Easter and to see the living Christmas tree. I therefore grew up really without any churching, and when I got to be about thirteen or so, twelve, thirteen, began to really ask those questions about what do I believe, and I remember seeing a, on TV televangelists, mostly evangelicals who were on the airwaves. This is prior to Mother Angelica and EWTN. And, uh, and post-Fulton Sheen. That's right. Well, that's right. And I remember hearing an awful lot about uh, the king is coming, and if you're not in right with Jesus, you're going to hell when he comes. 
and hell didn't sound real good. <laughs> and I couldn't honestly say with integrity, the integrity of a 13-year-old, that I really believed in Jesus as the Son of God. I had no problem with a God. I had no problem with a Jewish God. But who's this Jesus person? So I walked the mile or so down to the Woolco department store and picked up this great big huge King James Bible, one of these big family editions, and walked it home. And I'd like to say it was two miles uphill in the snow, but it was Southern California, so I can't get away with that. <laughs> and I read you know, about five chapters a night on average, and I managed to make it through this. I remember even coming to the New Testament and reading the Sermon on the Mount, these words you hear so often, there they are. How exciting to be able to see them there in print. <laughs> They're mine now. It was really cool. But I also remember thinking, okay, but there's nothing here that says that this Judaism is wrong. So for a while, I may actually made up my mind to practice the dietary laws, which worked fine until we had a pork roast, and Dad almost made a martyr out of me at that point when I refused to, to eat the pork roast. So he said, get thee to a, to a good minister. So we went to a Baptist minister, and we discussed some things, mostly about um, pork. And <laughs> as it turned out, I was able to buy the vision of Peter and Acts and... Uh, and became more in line. That, though, was the first time I had actually ever really been to a cleric to talk about my faith. I had really been an unchurched Christian, so to speak. Saw them on the silver screen, but not... That was it. I mean, I'm really the product of the television age evangelism. And I thank God for those evangelists. They really awakened in me a hunger and a thirst for Jesus Christ. And it was that hunger and thirst that really has dominated, at least I'd like to believe it's what's really has dominated my search for truth. So that as I continued in my journey, I really wasn't involved in church much. I read books. I remember some of the evangelicals that were out there. The Bible Answer Man uh, was on the radio, and Hal Lindsey had the late great planet Earth. And you know, his one chapter on Do We Live and Learn, I think, was it made sense to my 14-year-old mind. and It was all very good. And when I was able to finally drive, I started going to the Baptist church, was baptized a Baptist, and remained a Baptist up until I went to college. Uh, I skipped my senior year and kind of dropped out of high school and dropped into college and began there really enjoying the environment I was in. I was at a, a Cal State school. What I found, though when I began to really explore on a more adult level what my faith was, the group of evangelicals that I was with, and I don't want to indict all evangelicals with this, but the group that I was with, the more questions that I asked about deeper theology, the more that I I got the response, are you sure you're firm on your foundation? And of course I took umbrage to that. The reality was I probably wasn't, unless you say simply that Jesus Christ is your foundation, which is true, but from their perspective, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes with evangelicalism. And at that same time, I was involved with things that were happening at the school, and there was a Presbyterian campus ministry that was beginning to go on there as well. There are a couple of things that come and go in this. There's a, a young lady that I, I met in college who was very, very sweet. We never had a romantic relationship she had a brain tumor, and she was really the first Catholic I'd ever met, and she was Christian. I was a little bit surprised at this because, as a Baptist, of course, I had learned that Catholics really, of course, aren't Christian, and at least from the group that I had associated with. And 
I watched her die over about a two-year period. It profoundly affected how I really saw Catholicism, life and death. Really up to that point... Had her faith strengthened how she faced the end? Oh, yeah. Impressive to you? She, she died like an 80-year-old, ready to accept who, what God had for her. I mean, I say that meaning that she really believed that God knew what God was doing. And I don't think I realized even at the time how much that affected me, but it really did. I was wanting to really go into law. I was always interested in religion, but I added the major religious studies at that point and thought about going to seminary. I got more involved in the Presbyterians, became Presbyterian, and was uh, my senior year, I was given a trip up to San Francisco Theological Seminary, um, a Presbyterian seminary, uh, known to be a, a bit on the liberal side, but it was there on the West Coast. The person who ran the campus ministry for Presbyterians at my college had gone to this seminary, and so he paid for my trip up. It was wonderful. I enjoyed going to the seminary incredibly. You can ask all the questions you wanted to, and no one seemed to take umbrage at you asking them. In fact, they were quite interested that you might actually be able to challenge a few things. Fascinating. Great. Wonderful. Thrilled. It cost a lot of money. So for me, I had been spoiled on, on public school uh, tuition, where it's only, in those days it was only a couple of hundred dollars a semester to go. I decided I needed to wait. I didn't even really fill out the rest of the forms, though I knew this is something I'd like to do. I began teaching um, special education. I actually started as a substitute teacher right out of college and began, I I was given a long-term sub-assignment with teenagers who were, um, who had difficulties. We had those who could walk the ambulatory and those who couldn't. We sometimes refer to them as predators and prey to keep them a little bit separated. Um, It was an interesting experience. I got to see that life was not about some of the things that we sometimes think it's about, that love perhaps is more important than intellectual acuity. Our brains are not necessarily as important as we think. And... I also, that second year teaching, since no one else wanted that job, I started working weekends at a little Presbyterian church in Long Beach. I would make the commute from Riverside to Long Beach every weekend to do evangelism in this very little church there. It's no longer there now. It was finally uh, subsumed into the Presbytery. And I was there as the evangelism intern, and I, I loved it. About a month or so after getting in there, the pastor who had been there for a number of years resigned. And I ended up for that next month finding myself as kind of the interim interim. <laughs> now, they did get a pastor the next month, and he became very close friends with me all the way up to the day that he died. He was an older man. And in fact, later, as I reflected back with him on many things, he never questioned anything that I did so much as he didn't always agree with the conclusions I reached. But what both he and that experience did for me was to say, you know, the ministry I'm doing with these special ed kids is very valuable, important ministry, but I need to be doing something more directly theological, more directly pastoral. So after that second year, I went to seminary. I need to explain a little bit about the seminary I went to. I thank God for the seminary. It was a wonderful experience. I did not agree with many of my professors, which was probably a very good thing, because it meant that I had to be in very deep dialogue with with them on a number of issues. 
We had some there that would not necessarily be considered uh, orthodox on some of the things that they taught. Uh, but that was part of what seminary was about. At least that was the philosophy that they had. But prior to getting there, this seminary had a reputation for being a, a little on the liberal end. And they had brought in a president who used to be the moderator of the General Assembly, and now he was president of the seminary. The moderator of the General Assembly is kind of like the Presbyterian Pope. He's for a year. Uh, what they do in the Presbyterian Church, they have one person elected. He's kind of the the granddaddy pastor for the year, and he gets to run the General Assembly, and then he's the figurehead for a while. When he's done with that, often he'll go do other things that are of importance, such as run a seminary. And they had made arrangements with um, some people to get some money in, and they offered six of us, who were more conservative in our background, scholarships to go. So... All of a sudden, God had made a way for me to to get there. They were, ser- trying to, they were trying to give a bigger picture to their seminary, to try and widen how they yeah. understood within yeah. the domination. Yeah. yeah, and what I think that they liked from us, there's a, a real sense of joy to conservatives about serving Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of our lives, and we're not afraid to say that. I, they wanted that, and that was nice, but... The semester prior to arriving there, they had a, a, an unfortunate incident that uh, had reverberations. I think you mentioned when I talked about this that you even remembered oh, this yeah. incident. Back in the mid-80s. That right. they had the misfortune of, of inviting a speaker from another seminary of the Unitarian School, and this particular speaker was actually a Wiccan, or a, a Wicca witch. And it would have been fine had they had her there in Geneva Hall in a classroom just giving a lecture on... On, on what she believed, or right? You know, they they let her speak from the uh, from the chapel, and she led prayers to the underworld at the end, or at least <laughs> that's what was reported. And of course, that created a controversy that just didn't end. And now that I'm bringing it up again, I guess it still hasn't ended. And that was the environment in which I then came the next semester with these other conservative colleagues of mine. We had some issues. While I was there, there was a second paper started. The first paper that was there was called Feminist Perspectives, and there were some who thought that it really reflected one way of thinking. So there were those of us. I was the one first-year student. I think I was the only first. No, there were two of us that were first-year students, asked to be editors, and there was one middler and one final year. It takes three years to get through a Presbyterian seminary. And I enjoyed that immensely, and as it turned out, I did very well in seminary. I had very few problems with my teachers. We disagreed on a number of different issues. I did good on on my grades. My grammar may not be so good, but I did well on my grades. (laughs) What I ended up doing, though, as I was doing well and I took my first exam, which is that Bible content exam. I don't know if it was the same one you went through, but that Bible content exam, they let you take the first year, so you have three years to try to pass it. And I passed it that first year. And uh, then I, when we get to the third year, you take the other exams. And I passed all my exams. I noticed that I had some difficulties with my religion. I felt the Presbyterian Church loved Jesus Christ. And I felt that the people that I was involved with loved Jesus Christ. But there was a lot of difficulty that I had with some of the doctrine that was being taught. Not just at the seminary. Because this seminary really represented mostly one end of the Presbyterian Church. Right. There were other issues that I began to encounter, especially as I began to explore 
a second master's program. The way that they put together um, the programs there, you could add, since you're already going through three years toward a master's in divinity, and I was doing very well in those, you can add one more year, that gives you four years toward two master's degrees. And so I added uh, the church history one, and my focus was the second century, was early church history. And as I'm embracing all that I've got here at the seminary, this catapulted me over to the other side of the bay. San Francisco Theological Seminary is actually not located in San Francisco. It's up in Marin County. So the other side of the bay was Oakland, which is where they had the, these other seminaries. Three of them were Catholic. One of them was the, the Jesuit school. Uh, one of them was the Franciscans. And the other one was the Dominican school. And I did quite a bit of work there because there were a couple of professors that worked with early church and philosophy from ancient philosophy. Some very, very good people. Let's stop there for a second because I wanted to ask you about the early fathers. When you were, if you look back on your time in the Baptist church as a layman and then now... A very young layman. A young layman and then Presbyterian layman and then Presbyterian seminary. Had you read anything by the early fathers during that time? Had you talked about them? You're listening to a very special edition of Orange County Catholic Radio today. Featuring the audio presentation of EWTN's Journey Home TV show and our very own Rick Howick. Hang on, we'll get right back to the interview in just a moment. Listening to OC Catholic Radio. Thanks for being there. My name is Jim Governale. Let's jump back in now to Marcus Grodi's interview with Rick Howick. As they continue the story here, Marcus digs deeper into Rick's conversion story from Presbyterian minister to Roman Catholic. Had you read anything by the early fathers during that time? Had you talked about them? I assume, first of all, as you said earlier, that your view of the Catholic Church was it wasn't on the scope. Yeah, I did not do much personal reading of the early church fathers. And most of the material that I had gotten at the secular school I was going to for my undergraduate in religious studies didn't deal with early church fathers. Uh, the only real exposure I had gotten to early church fathers was what I had picked up from um, some evangelicals. Uh, I don't recall Jimmy Swaggart if he'd had his book out yet, um, but... I remember that it was right in that same genre of material that the early church fathers backs evangelicalism. And if you just read them, you'll find out that it does back the idea of faith alone and that, uh-huh. that scripture is all that you need in order to have authority. Uh, but no, I hadn't done much actual real study yet. But you presume probably that if you were, well, I'm wondering if, because I'm trying to also compare it, we both have Presbyterian backgrounds. I never felt any kind of a mandate to look into early fathers. There, there wasn't any. In fact, at seminary, they offered an Acts course, as I recall, in their catalog, but I can't remember ever seeing it offered yeah. because no one was interested in taking it. And the Acts of the Apostles, of course, is the early church. Yeah, in the eyes of... Right. In, 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 as far as the very first generation goes. And indeed, if you were going to take any of the early church, other than there was a survey course you had to take, which went from the founding of the Christian church to 1500. And so you do 1,500 years in a semester or so. 
other than that, you had to go to the Catholics or to the Anglicans, uh, the, the Episcopalians, in order to get early church fathers. They really didn't have much at that time at the seminary. So what I found was that I was going over to the other side of the bay and taking these courses from Catholics, not always in agreement with what the Catholics were saying. I remember once going through a multicultural ministry class, they're all introducing what order they're from, and I said, the order of the Presbyteri, and they all look again. <laughs> anyway, point being, as I began to look more and more at what the actual early church fathers wrote, whether it was from Clement or Ignatius or Justin or whomever. The more you look, the more you begin to become uncomfortable as a Presbyterian. Hmm. And if you love Jesus, that's a very difficult thing because everything is supposed to be in sync in Jesus's religion. What's going on? So what I ended up with was a, a growing dichotomy, a growing split for me between what I had grown up believing to be true, namely that the sole authority for my theology is the Bible and my way to salvation and to perfection, so to speak, is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And in fact, to be honest with you, I don't become perfect. Jesus vouches for me to, to declare me perfect. As Luther says, he covers you, so to speak. No real transformation of soul, but a transformation of the will. You become more pliant to Christ, but you don't actually change. As Luther would say, you're still a reprobate. And here what I'm reading in the early church fathers is that, no, you must actually change. That the Eucharist is really the body and blood of Christ. If you read Ignatius, the more that you read Ignatius, the more you begin to, to see over and over and over again that the Eucharist is something mystical. He talks about it as the antidote to mortality. That's not Presbyterian. <laughs> that's, not, that's not Calvinist. That's not Lutheran. What's more, the more you read that, you begin to see something else show up as well. This is a bishop-based church. It's a communicating bishop-based church. In the early church, you mean? In the early church, yes, yeah. yeah. So just take a look at the Bible and just look at that for a moment as a series of documents from the early church. You've got Paul writing from one church to another from across the Mediterranean. You've got letters from James, from John, from Jude. You've got letters from Peter. You've got letters in the New Testament that demonstrate these people were keeping in touch with the people that they were involved with, and they were aware of the ministries of the other people, too. Now, there were other letters that didn't make it into the New Testament, but were other letters. Barnabas out there, an apostle. We have his. We have the uh, third bishop of Rome, Clement, Two letters ascribed him, one of them genuine, that, that all scholars, Protestant and Catholic, agree is genuine, written probably somewhere between the, the late 70s and the mid-90s of that first century. Writing again as the Bishop of Rome to another church, talking about bishops and their authority. And then you get to Ignatius, and he's this Bishop of Antioch, trained by one of the apostles. You'd think he'd know what, what they taught. <laughs> And he's now voluntarily going over to his death, what he knows is his martyrdom, and he writes these series of letters, of which we've got seven. They're addressed to bishops. And when he, what does he talk in there? He talks about the authority of bishops. He talks about the authority of the Eucharist, and that Eucharist is only valid when it's celebrated in union with the bishop. Valid for what? I was taught it's about the priesthood of all believers. What's that about? So that I began to really experience a division 
in what I was taught to be true versus what I was experiencing in the history that I was studying. At what point in there did you discover that this wasn't just not Presbyterian, but this was pulling you in the direction of Rome? Well, I had a couple of things that happened. I had a, a friend who uh, really prodded me quite a bit and got me involved with some Catholics and challenged me to uh, really reflect on why I believed what I believed. I believe that the Bible alone was all that was needed. We're backing up now a little bit from where I, I ended up, but... And as part of that, I had already begun thinking some of these thoughts, but this person came along right at the right time to ask some of these questions and then linked me up with some people that were very important. A Father Cozina out of St. Margaret Mary's in Oakland. I was introduced to him. I didn't know at the time, but I was being introduced to the person who was the only person in the Oakland area to have the indult to be able to do the Latin masses, both in Novus Ordo and the Trinitine. And he was a Slovenian. He kind of talked like this, kind of like Boris Karloff. And I came into his, the first time to listen to him preach. I actually came, and I kind of snuck in the back with this friend of mine. And when he got to his sermon, he, he preached on hell. He kind of preached like hell. You know, that's really loud type. A, a Catholic teaching on hell. I had been to other Catholic sermons. I hadn't heard anyone really teach on hell before. Um, it was one of the reasons why I kind of dismissed the Catholic Church really was they don't stand for anything the experience that I'd had up to that point anyway so I was introduced to some people that began to allow me to explore we go back to that same theme of needing to ask questions I found a mentor in this Father Cozina mentor is the wrong term but someone allowing me to explore he was I believe in his 70s at the time I remember the first time that I sat down with him for an appointment and I was there at his coffee table, and I merely mentioned this Peter problem about what authority he had. And he says, excuse me for just a minute. And he then goes upstairs, and he comes down with this big stack of books, most of them are Greek. And he begins to start trying to show me, and of course, assuming that I know my Greek better than he does, and I'm sorry, I'm a modern <laughs> seminary, and we don't know the Greek that well, and I did pretty well. Uh, but he was very patient and worked with me on where I was. But it really emerged to two issues. One of them had to do with Eucharist, and I would call that, frankly, the secondary issue for me. It was in the back of my mind because I was now beginning... I knew what transubstantiation was. I'd studied the history. I knew it intellectually, but I'd always dismissed it. So while I'm asking these questions, in the back of my mind, there's this, what if it is true? I remember going into a church once and hearing the bells... And then everyone kneeling, and I'm thinking, they all think that's God up there. And it hit me. What if it is? It sends that shiver down you when you get to realize <laughs> that. But that wasn't the major issue for me. I was too intellectually prideful, I think, to really listen as much to that as I needed to. It really was, if Peter was given authority, and you could tell just by reading Scripture, he was given some sort of authority. If that was the blank check that it seemed to be in Scripture, when did he lose it? And if he had that blank check, and church history indicates that it was passed on, well, even Luther indicated it was passed on, but that the papacy lost it. Well, when? I'm studying early church history. Let's find out. So I remember debating a friend of mine. Debate's kind of a hard term to use. I don't think we were. And debate's a bad thing, in my opinion, anyway. It has to do with mental acuity more than the spirit. And, uh-huh. Anyway. But I, I remember thinking, you know, this person... She, was getting exasperated and finally said, well, 
you know, prove it. And I said, okay, I will. What do I have to prove? Well, you just said, I, I guess I had said, that if the Pope is indeed infallible, then God will protect the Pope from anything that is wrong when he's speaking as an infallible Pope from the chair of Peter intending to bind the whole church. And I'll lay you dollars to donuts that I can show you a Pope that committed heresy. You got 265 of them. We got to find one. Jesus had one out of 12. We should be able to find at least 10%. <laughs> so I began my search. And I, once the more I, I began to look and look and look, the more dry I found it. I even went to the 800s and 900s where we have some really bad popes, morally speaking. I mean, to be honest about our own heritage, we have some very bad popes in there morally. But the more evil they acted, the more silent they were on theology. And that's where I was going. I finally turned to the experts. I went to the Protestants and the Orthodox and found out what they had to say. And what I found was they had identified three. Vigilius, Honorius, and Liberius the first. Each of them the first. No one wanted to be the second, I guess. But. And Vigilius and Liberius, both of them were shown to really have been... They, they had fallen because of politics more than anything else. But Honorius... There we had someone. There I, I, I could smell the smoke from here. He supposedly taught uh, about a heresy, or taught from the chair of Peter a heresy, in letters he had written to Sergius, which he was an Eastern bishop. And he was talking about monothelitism, a very fancy M word for there being one will. And we know there's two wills to Jesus, his human will and his divine will. So... If this seemed to be fairly simple, all we'd need to do is to find the evidence where he taught this, and we're done. So I went to the library, and I found the two letters that were extant. They were, of course, written in Greek, and I'm not a fool. I can't read Greek that well. There was a facing copy of German, and I don't do German. But Father Kozina, I figured, would. He was from Slovenia, and, of course, he didn't either. But he had someone who did. So... God bless them. We had a couple of people who translated the German of these letters into English so I could look at these, find the Greek section, and parse just that section of the Greek. And it was wonderful. Paydirt, I found it. There it is. He talks in this paragraph about the one will of Jesus. Ha, a pope committing heresy. Oh, wait. As you read further down the paragraph, he starts talking about the two wills of Jesus. Oh, he was talking about, of course, there being two wills of Jesus, but that one will was operating as in, not my will, but thy will be done. That's orthodox. And I remember that night, sitting up on my roof, overlooking the Golden Gate Bridge, watching the sunset go down over the bay, and kind of seeing my career going way down with it, because I figured, <laughs> if that's the best that 2,000 years of debate, 500 years of Protestants looking for everything that they could throw at the church, and this is it, I'm in trouble. And so I think it was really at that point that it came crumbling down because if the papacy is legitimate, then everything else falls into place. And that's where I found myself. I had completed my master's in divinity. I had completed virtually all of my master's in church history. And I was beginning to work on my thesis. And my thesis really had to do with the early church, but from a Presbyterian perspective, and that creates a real problem when you realize you're probably going to now become Catholic. <laughs> so that's where I found myself at seminary. So you left seminary, you didn't finish the seminary, and you 
Find yourself a good Catholic girl. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I should have introduced her. Hi, honey. Uh, my, my wife is the most saintly person I've ever met. I have four beautiful children, and I met her after leaving the seminary. I knew that I wasn't called to the priesthood. There are many ways to serve. I did not feel that I was called to be a priest. But I did feel that uh, I didn't want to waste what I had. I went back to teaching, but I got to teach in a Catholic school. That was my compromise. Little did I know that that wasn't where God had left me. That in actuality, I was being, I was kind of going through my desert experience. I converted over in August of 1992. And in 1997, so about five years later, I got a call from one of the people in the parish that I was beginning to get more and more involved in. And he knew a woman by the name of Lou Cortese who ran a program down in Orange County called St. Joseph Radio. And by this time, it's five years into it. I'm married, but I'm involved. The people that I've been involved with up in the Bay Area seem so much more devout than a lot of the people I had been encountering uh, down south. I learned something as time went by as well, that people are not to be judged. That's a hard thing, lesson to learn. There's a great deal of devotion that the people that I was associated with, uh, that they genuinely have. But it wasn't what I had been brought into. I was wondering, where's all the Catholics? Mm -hmm. But at St. Joseph Radio, when I began to get involved there, I was asked to give a presentation. So like a good Presbyterian, I wrote out an hour's worth of presentation. It was the most boring thing you could have ever listened to. What (laughs) saved me at all was that when we got to the end of this very boring hour, they finally started asking questions and answers, and I didn't have anything written to destroy anything with, so (laughs) I actually talked off the cuff. I could do that okay. And she asked me to come back and make a couple more presentations, and then eventually asked me to start working on the air. I've never gone into it from a full-time basis, don't intend to unless God calls a lot harder than he has. But what it's allowed me to do, I now, and have been doing so for the last, uh, well, several years now, uh, I do a regular Saturday broadcast on St. Joseph Radio. Some of my tapes are online, and uh, I've enjoyed that immensely. It's allowed me to meet people like, I know the Lord's, uh, Bob and Penny are on from time to time, not necessarily here. Father Benedict Groeschel, he actually had a, there's a story that goes along with that we can talk about a little bit later, Maybe a little bit, yeah. that he, uh, he had a profound influence on my second stage, really, to conversion. Let's take a break. We'll be back just a moment with a little bit more from Rick and then your questions for him. So, see you in a bit. Once again, quick break here on Orange County Catholic Radio. Be sure to stick around as we hear more call-in questions and answers from Rick Howick's guest appearance on EWTN's The Journey Home. Now, back to Orange County Catholic Radio as host Marcus Grodi sets the stage. Welcome back. Our guest tonight is Rick Howick. Is that right? Howick? You said Howick. The, the Canadian translation. Uh, Howick. Yeah. Howick. Yeah. Was it French? Uh, no, it was very, very good English. Uh, okay. We actually come from an area that uh, Earl Grey was the, the Earl of Howick. We were not oh, related okay. to him. We were peasants that escaped him. But that's... <laughs> Or burned by something like that. (laughs) All right. Before we go on, we have a phone call waiting and and a couple phone calls. And I want you to go in because you had mentioned Father Benedict Rochelle. And real briefly, I think 
we talk about conversion yeah. to Christ and then conversion to the church, but what you want to say is something I've, I often want to emphasize is that the conversion doesn't stop there. That's exactly right. I found myself uh, about five years into my conversion now doing interviews and doing kind of what we're doing here only on the radio. And I enjoyed doing that in the studio, but we would also go live on location to like the uh, Southern California Renewal Conference. Uh, I've been to Fargo and up to Billings, exciting places like that. Though They really are nice places. I don't want to ding them. They're actually very good people. But... In going there, I, I was able to interview a number of different people who were the speakers. You've been there. You've been yep. a speaker at different yep. places like this. And so you try to grab them and, and get them for a half hour if you can. And this is the first time I'd ever met Father Grushel. And, in fact, frankly, the first time I'd ever really heard of him. I was told he's a, he's a good man. You'll like him. He'll be a good interview. Trust me. So I, was, I went to go get him and brought him back. Uh, he actually was speaking, and I wa- opened the door, and there's 5,000 people there listening to him. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? He's obviously important. So I went up to him. They let me get close to him, and I told him who I was. Oh, yes, yes, it was very nice. We had this interview, and we were beginning to go into some intellectual stuff on the Reformation that my technical director was beginning to say, well, you know, kind of slow it down. Our audience is going to be lost on this. When Father, we're in the middle of this conversation, and he stops, he looks me in the eye and says, you're still thinking like a, like a Protestant. And the reason you're doing that, and he laid out X, Y, and Z, and then went right on. And I was, took a little umbrage to a degree, but not a whole lot. After all, I, I like this guy. He seemed to be um, you know, very sincere in what he was saying. And intellectually, he knows his stuff. So I, I went back and listened to that tape again and wrote down a couple of things. And then I began to reflect on what he was saying. And it really was true. There's a certain degree to which I, as a Protestant, thought very linear. Not all Protestants do, perhaps, but a lot do. It has to do, I think, with there being two main theories behind the religion. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, and Sola Fide, faith alone. And everything's reduced to those at some level, at least amongst evangelicals. And so everything can, it can be reduced to a line. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. And I was still thinking that way, that I had changed how I thought about my faith, but there was still a so what statement. Hmm. You know, so how does this affect you? Because this isn't about having a correct knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's about being in love with Jesus Christ, being one with Jesus Christ. Hmm. And the more I studied, I, I had a couple people say, you know, in fact, I did a series with a priest who led me through the interior castle by uh, Teresa of Avila, one of the doctors of the church. And she talks about union, not about a Hindu, a drop of water going back to the ocean. You, you keep your identity as a Christian always. But the Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 13, that right now we see as through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face and know as we are known. Now that's a profound statement. To know God as we are known And it began to affect me that this isn't just about an intellectual agreement. This is about union with God. And I like to say that Protestants aren't so wrong as they're incomplete. They love Jesus. I love Jesus. It's my understanding that you found Jesus as a Protestant. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. It's about coming into the depth of that love. You know, I was thinking of a a verse, and we're going to go to our first caller. And just just to, to summarize... What you're saying, just to show you that even in Scripture, as Protestants, we, we encountered verses that 
talked about an experience in union with Christ that is so much more than we ever thought about because of, again, these kind of linear categories. In Ephesians 3, he talks about to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Filled Filled with the fullness of God. It's more than being covered. It's being filled with the fullness. Filled with the fullness. Imagine what that means. Yeah. Filled with the fullness of God. It's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. It's I mean, exciting. it's so much more. And that's what it means to be Catholic in, yeah. in our understanding why the sacraments, why the church, why the teachings. It's not just so we've got everything right between our ears. Yeah. It's so that we all that we are. See, this is not just about coming to an intellectual argument. Why the Catholic Church is superior. It's about a true, full, in-love relationship. We're the bride of Christ. What does that mean? Faith gets you there. That's the first start, and then you react to it in your morality. But the love affair is in the spirituality, which is sacramentally and prayerfully in union with God. All right, great. I know that we've got uh, a few callers, so let's go with Nicole from Nebraska. Hello, Nicole. What's your question? Hi, Marcus. Uh, My question is, do all Presbyterians believe in once saved, always saved? And how does that relate to the idea of predestination? Because it seems that if we are predestined, that we should not be able to, or we should not have to come to that initial salvation. <laughs> Very, thank you, Nicole. <laughs> wow, I'm not sure I really even want to go there. Remember, I went to this nice liberal seminary where Calvinism wasn't really a major stay. Well, the sad thing is, you know, do all Presbyterians believe that? There's not anything that all Presbyterians agree on, be sadly. Careful. I know. Be I, careful. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the reality is that if you, if you look at the Presbyterians who are active today, you've got, like in most churches, those who are focused on an orthodox understanding of what they believe and those who are what they would call, I think, comfortably more progressive in what they believe. Yeah. Sticking just with the orthodox group, the group that comfortably describes themselves as orthodox, there is a belief that you are once saved, you're always saved. But the Calvinist understanding of of double predestination is you just don't necessarily know it, which means that what you thought was faith in Jesus Christ may not necessarily have been a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you just don't know it until the final end. Well, if you fell away, if you became Catholic, uh, you obviously didn't have that saving faith in Jesus Christ. You just don't quite know it. That's perhaps too summarized, but that's essentially how I understood it when I was looking at it. All right. Let's try and get more phone calls in because we talked quite a bit, you and I, in the first part. I talk a lot. No, I'll meet you. Felicitas from Ohio. Hello. What's your question? Hi, Marcus. Great show. I look forward to your show every time. I also had the great privilege to guide a friend of mine from the Methodist Church to the Catholic Church. But I found that her, uh, one of her biggest hurdles was confession. Yep. I just wonder how Mr. Howick got over this hurdle about confession. Thank you, Felicitas. I still haven't. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, have you actually, tried it yet? This is the, yeah, I need to try that sometime. This is, this is one of the most important uh, doctrines to the church, and it's one of the things that really does push you over from a biblical perspective. If you go to the Gospel of John, and in that last section there, I think it's 1919 roughly, uh, you've got Jesus coming back from the dead. And everyone's so scared about this that he says, peace be with you. And then he pauses for a moment and he says it again, peace be with you. And he says to these 11 disciples, as the father has sent me, so I send you. 
Now, how did the Father send him? He sent him to forgive sins. That's what he got into so much trouble about with the Jews, remember? Only God can forgive sins. That's why they wanted to stone him. So as the Father sent me, so I send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he's very specific about what it is I'm going to charge you with. The sins that you forgive are forgiven. The sins you retain are retained. As a Presbyterian, I had no problem with the sins forgiven, forgiven part. We're all forgiven when we're introduced to Jesus Christ. What about this retaining thing? (laughs) Which means they had the ability to do that? Well, yes. Well, when would that take place? What would that look like? Well, let's take an example. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been three years since my last confession. In this time, I have um, stolen money from my business. I have embezzled money. Well, have you given the money back and have you stopped doing this? Oh, yes, Father, I gave it back three years ago, plus interest, and I'm so sorry. Well, then your sins are forgiven. That's scenario one. Scenario two, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It's been three years since my last confession. This time I've embezzled money. Well, have you given it back? Well, no, but actually I can give you a little bit of payoff here, and we can go to Bermuda together. He can't forgive the man because you have to have contrition. The only way to know that is to have heard it. Because while he gives them the ability to forgive sins, nowhere in that passage does he give them the ability to read bites. No gift of clairvoyance there. From my perspective, it fits very well as well with this theology of becoming united with God. Otherwise, confession wouldn't make sense. But it does because we are in the process of becoming, a lifetime process. Which also connects with the issue of authority that was the main reason that kind of opened you up to the church. Let's go to Joel from North Carolina. Hello, Joel. What's your question? Yes, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, Joe, thank you very much. Important question. It's a very important question. This is the money question. (laughs) You must love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Upon this is what Jesus posits. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4 in its core, which Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Nanayachad, was the Jewish call to worship, and Jesus repeated it daily. It is the focus of all that we are. Notice, by the way, when you're looking at what Jesus preaches about becoming one with God, he never says, you must believe in me to have salvation. He does say, under no other name in heaven and earth are you saved. But he doesn't say that's, that knowledge of that is what saves you. It is total repentance. Notice in Matthew 4, I think it's verse 17, when he gives his first message, which should be the most important thing, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the core of his message. Repenting means over a lifetime, metanoia, changed life. You want to have salvation with God? It's not about a Billy Graham crusade, though Billy Graham's a very good man. That's a great start, getting on your knees and saying, Jesus, I love you, wonderful, we've started. Now what? It's about fulfilling that in a lifetime of loving God. Excellent, excellent. Go to Mary from Minnesota. Hello, Mary, what's your question? Tell me how Rick Howick learned about the Mass. All right. I learned about the Mass uh, in a couple of ways. From a negative perspective, as a good Baptist, when I was um, a a good Baptist um, for the few years that I was, I had some people that discussed a couple of things. We discussed Mormonism and why Mormonism has problems. Mormons just want to become gods someday. That's not in keeping with uh, a monotheistic religion. We talked about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, who were 144,000 are going to be saved essentially. We talked about Catholics in that same group of being apostasies of the Christian faith. And so from a very negative perspective, the Mass was worshiping an idol. The 
the paste that was baked into bread, worshipped as God, is just idolatry from that perspective. It wasn't until I began to really entertain the idea that perhaps I was wrong and open up to the idea that perhaps the Eucharist is indeed more than just paste that we're worshipping. It really is something far more that we get into, well, some of the scriptures. John 6, where it starts talking about my flesh is true food, uh, my, flesh is, my flesh is food indeed, my, my blood is drink indeed. And then unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Uh, this was something, by the way, as you get to the end of that, his apostles, his, the apostles, the, people, the disciples following him couldn't believe this. And many left over this issue. And he even challenges his own disciples about it. It was within that context that when I began as a possible Catholic, meaning looking at the possibility that it began to dawn on me, this really could be. But it really wasn't until I could accept the authority issue of the papacy that it became for me real. Interesting, that, that question we had earlier, I wish we had more time, uh, but uh, you know, how do you receive eternal life? Well, again, even that phrase, eternal life, as a Protestant, we just equated that with salvation. Right. But in reality, eternal life in Scripture means a whole lot more. It's something you experience this side of heaven also. You begin yeah. to experience. In fact, the, the verse you quoted from John 6, you know, receiving eternal life through the sacrament of Eucharist, yeah. the divine life, the, the, the presence of God in our hearts. It's so sacramental. I mean, even to the point where he will spit, make mud, rub it on people's eyes. It doesn't take the first time in Mark. He has to do it again. <laughs> Remember that? It's actually kind of humorous if you look at it from one perspective. Does he need to use the physical means? No. I mean, after all, we get the one time where the, the centurion oh, yeah, just, you know, just says no. But he uses the physical anyway because we need it. Let's go to John from Florida. Hello, John. What's your question? Yes, Rick. It's an honor to talk with you. Thank you. Uh, my question is, if it's all right, I'm sure you are aware of this, but you'd like to hear it from me. Uh, there are two distinct groups that are that seem to be managing, if it were, the Presbyterian Church here in our country at the moment. One is the so-called main body, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, and also... There's the Presbyterian Church Conservative Alliance. Hmm. So the issue of the splits within the church. If you look back on that, how do you... Well, you know, there's a problem with having Scripture as your final authority. It was never meant that way. In fact, Scripture not only doesn't teach that, it teaches that the final authority is human beings guided by the Spirit of God in the form of the apostles, and Peter is head of that. When you take Scripture as your final authority, well, that's actually you being the final authority interpreting it. We now have about 26,000 different interpretations of that, and more and more each year. And that's, the, that's really the ultimate problem with it. I mean, this is not a, a great analogy that I'm going to give, but you can imagine, you know, thousands of boats that are uh, moored to one another some one-to-one, some two-to-one, some five-to-one going to others, all their mooring lines going to one major dock that pulls them all together. And that's what keeps them in line and holds them in the midst of a storm. Well, then all of a sudden when those groups to say there is no dock, there is no major dock that holds us together, then all of a sudden you have all these boats adrift trying to decide how to understand what they are. 
or the dock is lost in the fog and no one can agree as to how to get to the yeah. dock. Then. I mean, that's kind of what people are trying to do once you've thrown up the authority. Uh, very quickly, Bill from Mississippi, what's your question? Very quickly. The question I have is I have a Presbyterian friend who, when I talked to him, he insists that Christ did not found the church, that actually the church was founded by Paul. And my question is, is this a, a common Orthodox a Presbyterian idea or not? And I'll hang up and Thank wait you very much. answer. Well, actually, Paul is stressed far more than anybody else in Scripture in most of the classes that I took. Because Paul, of course, is where we find Romans. And Romans was interpreted to bring about faith alone is all you need for salvation. Uh, but if you come down to when Paul ends up going to be instructed as an apostle in the book of Acts, he goes to Cephas, Peter, and the apostles to be instructed and spends two weeks with Peter before he then goes off for the next 18 years in order to be called finally by God himself. In Galatians we see that. He goes to receive the right hand of fellowship to Mm -hmm. know that what he's teaching is true. If you're looking out here to the audience and a few Presbyterians are out there, what would you say to them to encourage them to consider making the same journey home you've made? Wow. Presbyterianism has to do with the love of Jesus Christ, and that's where I would start. The question isn't, though, entirely, do you love Jesus with your, with your mind? It's also, have you embraced Christ with all that you are? That's body, soul, spirit. That's your faith, your morality, your spirituality, working cyclically, bringing you closer and closer in a deep devotion. It's not enough to say, I have faith in Jesus Christ. It has to do with an embrace of the totality, becoming complete. Deals with surrender and humility. That's what faith means anyway. It isn't merely intellectual assent. It can't be. And if that's the case, then the totality of who we are in relation to Jesus Christ is the totality of us as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for your witness and your work on radio, too. Appreciate that very much. Thank you, Marcus. And God bless you all. It's always great to be with you in the journey home. You've been listening to a truly unique edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. Hope you enjoyed this interview that we pulled from the YouTube archives, which featured our very own Rick Howick being interviewed about 15 years ago by Marcus Grodi on the Journey Home television show. You can access the podcast of this interview or any of the others that we bring you each week by visiting OCCatholic.com and then click the radio drop-down menu. That's OCCatholic.com and click radio. Have a blessed day and may the Lord bless you in all that you do in service of Him.